You are listening to Colorado Outdoors, the podcast for Colorado Parks and Wildlife. What's going on and welcome everybody to the Colorado Outdoors podcast presented by Colorado Parks and Wildlife. I'm your host, John Livingston, and it's my pleasure to take over hosting duties of this show as we relaunch it here this year following a year-long hiatus. The show launched in 2020, and we produced 31 shows that were hosted by Mark Johnson, who's the legendary voice of CU Athletics here in Colorado. I certainly don't have as iconic of a voice as Mark, but I'm a proud Colorado buff, and I'm excited to take over the seat as host of the show. As a public information officer for CPW, I'm proud to tell the stories of our incredible staff that teach me something new every day. I hope each episode of the Colorado Outdoors podcast teaches you something new, too. We're going to be bringing you stories and important information from our staff and our partners about the ways we all work together to conserve Colorado, maintain the parks, landscapes, wildlife, and all those great recreational opportunities that connect us to our home. To start this new chapter of the show, we're going to jump right into a burly topic, and that's bears. In this episode, we check in with area wildlife managers from around the state to hear what kind of conditions they've seen so far on the ground this year. We're also going to look at how communities play a huge role in keeping bears wild and how CPW grant funding can help extend the work being done within those communities. Bears are intelligent, resourceful, and amazing animals. With a nose that's 100 times more sensitive than ours, a bear can smell food up to 5 miles away. Today, anywhere from 17,000 to 20,000 black bears are trying to share space with an ever-growing human population in Colorado. With many more people living and playing in bear country, human-bear encounters are on the rise. Colorado bears have people problems. Every year, bears attracted to human food sources damage property, vehicles, and even homes. Bears don't know they're doing anything wrong. They're just following their super-sensitive noses to the most calories they can find. Bears that find food around homes, campgrounds, and communities often lose their natural wariness of people. Even though black bears are not naturally aggressive and seldom attack or injure people, they are still strong and powerful animals. A bear intent on getting a meal could injure someone who gets in its way, and every year bears that have become too comfortable around people have to be euthanized. In this episode, we check in with area wildlife managers from around the state to hear what kind of conditions they're seeing on the ground this year for our bears. That's enough rambling for me, now let's get to the real experts. All right, let's get right to it here on the Colorado Outdoors podcast with our area wildlife managers. Let's start over in Colorado Springs with Tim Crane. Tim, go ahead. Sure thing, John. Appreciate it. I'm Tim Crane. I uh, am over in Colorado Springs, oversee Teller County, Colorado Springs, and on out to the Kansas state line. Um, and kind of our forage this year, you know, it's really green. Uh, lots and lots of moisture all over the place. Uh, we may have some late freezes that have... Uh, kind of knocked out some of that mass crop for our bears uh, we will see time will tell um, but we've been off to a little bit of a rocky start with bear conflicts already uh, just in the teller county and and uh, colorado springs area um, so we will see um, right now i think the bears are um, been focusing on some fawns um, and then just some other food sources so our conflicts have gone down in like the last week or so but we'll see what happens later on this year. Uh, that's kind of what's going on in Colorado Springs. Uh, Adrian Archuleta here in my backyard in Durango. I guess maybe a little bit contrasting. You know, we had that huge snowpack year, but now it's been you know super dry, uh, really hot for the last four or five weeks. What are we kind of seeing with bear conditions uh, here around southwest Colorado? Yeah, thanks, John. Um, Adrian Archuleta, Area Wildlife Manager here in the Durango area and cover kind of uh, very southwest Colorado from the Utah State Line, Wolf Creek Pass, kind of bound by the Connell Divide, um, San Juan National Forest. And yeah, John, we did, you know, start out with a bang, good, good uh, moisture this winter. Um, You know, we always have kind of a couple weeks in May where, you know, bears emerge, they're hungry, but uh, there was lots of good green vegetation. Still is lots of good green vegetation out there. Oak brush, um, acorns are starting to pop a little bit. But as you mentioned, We've been in a little bit of a dry spell, really hot conditions, windy, so things are really drying out fast. Uh, we have seen an uptick in, in human bear conflict incidents here the past couple of weeks. Um, just bears, you know, um, trash, again, as we all know, is is kind of the, the number one 
conflict issue. Um, but uh, we're starting to see bears um, become a little habituated and now starting to test out, um, you know, uh, residences and buildings and whatnot, which is not a, which is not a good thing. Uh, so we're hopeful we'll get some monsoon season, some moisture here and, and the, uh, the berries and acorns will fill out and um, hopefully we don't see the, the light switch flip in the, the wrong direction here in the, uh, in the coming month. Sure. Uh, Matt Yamashita out of the Northwest region, I believe out of Aspen and Glenwood. Is that right, Matt? Yeah, that is, John. Um, my name is Matt Yamashita. I'm the area wildlife manager out of the Glenwood Springs office, uh, overseeing the our wildlife staff in the Roaring Fork and Eagle Valleys. That's Pickens County, Eagle County, and the eastern half of Garfield County. Um, we're, we're no stranger to bear conflict. I mean, we, we kind of have made our mark uh, just with with some of the notoriety that we in the Aspen area specifically for the number of bear conflicts, the severity of bear conflicts that we've hosted over um, the, the past couple of decades. Same as everybody else, you know, Colorado had a pretty decent winter. Um, much of Western Colorado had above average snowpacks. We're reaping the benefits of that now and in, in the green grasses and vegetation that are coming out. Um, unfortunately, we are, I think a lot of the bear conflicts that we're seeing um, are residual from the previous years leading up to this year. And a lot of the learned behavior that came to play over the last three, four, five, better part of a decade, those bears have have um, become habituated, have learned the wrong things uh, when foods, uh, natural food sources were in short call. And now they they don't know how to be a normal bear. So we're, we're seeing some of that. Um, those behaviors being replicated, even with normal natural food sources being available, uh, we do we are seeing a fair number of bear conflicts in our area here. A, a, there's a large portion of those bear conflicts that are fairly severe in nature. Um, when I say severe, we're, we're ha- we have a lot of home entries, um, a lot of ones that we would consider to be human health and safety type issues. Yeah, Tim, I, I guess, you know, for Colorado Springs, that's where I grew up and now I'm in Durango. I know, you know, it seems like human bear conflicts can be different depending on where you're living in the state. Um, I guess what makes some of the incidents you see in Colorado Springs or Mantu Springs, Woodland Park areas, um, you know, maybe a little bit different than what we might see on the Western Slope? And what's kind of been some of the more troubling incidences you've seen so far this year? Sure, great question. Well, Colorado Springs is a pretty large city. Um, as you know, since you grew up here. And, uh, you know, there's also lots of good bear habitat right up next to Colorado Springs and then lots of green belts that go all the way into Colorado Springs and, and those bears and other wildlife are going to use those green belts and come all the way into the city. Um, I would say we did get a city ordinance in Colorado Springs a few years back that uh, folks west of I-25, um, including Manitou Springs, they've got their own ordinance, um, but they had to actually lock and secure their their garbage um, in bear-resistant cans or have them in garages, and that's really helped. Um, but we do have a lot of uh, younger bears that are trying to figure things out this year um, and are kind of just, I mean, what Adrian and Matt both alluded to, um, they're, they're getting more habituated with folks, um, and we've already had a few home entries um with some of these they've all been younger bears when i say younger i'm saying um, they're probably about one and a half years old um we've had two or three of those already this year uh, which has been significant they're just they're they're getting used to people um because there's other whether it's still people that aren't abiding by those ordinance with trash and the bears coming in and getting used to people getting habituated um people are standing around not making the bear uh, feel uncomfortable, uh, but they're taking pictures, which is fine to do from a distance for a little bit. But then I also encourage people, hey, scare that bear off. You don't want it to feel comfortable around you or people. Um, and anyways, it's the bears are getting comfortable with folks. Um, and then it's led to some of those home entries. Um, we did have one up in Teller County that, uh, you know, this was bear wasn't really seen around town much at all, but it went right away into a house. And part of that is too, the bears follow in their nose. They've got a great sense of smell. Um, and it was looking for an easy meal. Uh, they're opportunistic and homeowners, um, they, they had a, a unlocked door and that bear actually reached up and it was one of those lever ones and just opened it on up, 
clearly they learned that behavior somewhere, uh, gotten more probably previously and got into the house and um, did create quite the mess. Um, and unfortunately, we uh, had to put that bear down because it got into a house. It's a human health and safety concern. So those are some of the more egregious ones. And usually, you know, those all stem from prior learned behavior where these bears are getting habituated, uh, learning how to get these rewards, uh, food sources, I call them. And uh, then they kind of escalate from there. Yeah, Adrian, you know, Tim mentioned the uh, ordinances in some of those towns. I know uh, we locally uh, here down Durango, La Plata County have those. What's the difficulty um, maybe in enforcing some of those ordinances? And uh, what do we have to do to work with community partners to make sure that, you know, once the ordinance is placed that, it, you know, uh, you know, folks are abiding by it? Yeah, great question, John. And that's a good segue picking up with some of the stuff Tim just covered. Um you know, education, and we can get into that of just asking people to do their part. But um, here in the Durango area, and I'm sure some of these areas where Matt and Tim are at as well, we have a lot of uh, tourists that come in from out of town during the summer season, um, renting Airbnbs, just vacationers, part-time homeowners. So um, we we really need to work closely with our partners to help educate, you know, whether that's, you know, municipalities, counties, uh, bear working groups to try to help reach people in ways that we may not through, be able to effectively through our channels to, to really try to get people to do their part in securing attractants. Because uh, as we've been talking about, a lot of these, you know, habituated uh, situations and 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 bears starting to push, push, push the limit, test things, start off with, you know, it might be a a bird feeder, a hummingbird feeder, um, you know, an incident where trash was left out once, but you think about 20 people living on a cul-de-sac or in the neighborhood, and all it takes is one person to to not be doing the, the things that should be done, and that can can start down, you know, getting a bear leading down the wrong pathway. So um, with that, um, I think the one big thing to, to I'd like to talk about too is just timeliness of reporting. Um, you know, CPW, we are the experts, we are the agency that that is tasked with managing uh, wildlife resources in the state of Colorado. So there are some other good resources out there. Um, you know, some some counties and, you know, in the, in the city of Durango, we do have um, officers, you know, um, that will enforce those ordinances. But we we would like to get those reports and, and timeliness of those reports is critical because if too often we get a report of like, hey, you know, I've had this bear. It's been around for two weeks. It kind of hit my trash. We fixed that. But we had we left some hummingbird feeders out, some bird seed and the bear came back. And now we're to the point where we're calling you guys because we want you to do something about it. And it's like, well, thank you. We, we wish you would have called two weeks ago because we, we do have, um, you know, some resources and some tools that we can help to help folks deter, you know, bears, help them make become unwelcome. We, we've talked about bears starting and it usually starts with testing windows, testing doors. We have unwelcome mats that we can loan out to people. Um, so um, it, it's unfortunate because by the time we get calls, you know, it becomes a human health and safety issue where we do have to take action and it often results in a bear being put down. Whereas if we would have gotten the original call, maybe it was just utilizing the resources we had and maybe working with partners to sec better secure the attractants, deter the bear. So again, bears are smart. If it's not there, they're going to move on and hopefully they move on and, and rely on natural food sources. But again, too often the, the, the calls that we get, are, are too late, too stale, and it, the bears kind of already crossed this line um, where we we can be proactive and help with the situation. So that I think that's the plea, and and it just it's it's frustrating because it's it, it happens too often. We just don't get the call soon enough. You know, Matt, I wanted to follow up with you um, uh, about what Adrian's kind of talking about working with our local communities, and you know, what do we say to folks who maybe say don't call CPW because it's going to be dangerous for the bear? I feel like sometimes here in Durango we stress that we do find out about incidents too late, um, and it's better for the bear and for the humans if we can get those calls early. You know, what would you just say to the folks uh, in the community about making sure they contact CPW? I agree 100% with what Adrian was mentioning. And that I think that's a statewide phenomenon on people, you know, reporting things too late. The second part to that, that conversation that we see here locally a lot is they don't even report things, period. Um, you know, not it's not even just that it's a late report. It's that they it's never reported. Uh, we find out through other means, you know, it's kind of through the rumor mill of a bear that's that's broken into a house five, six, seven times already. And we never, ever heard of it. Um, so, you know, it, it does, it, it binds us up on our, our ability 
to to respond to that. Um, our hands are kind of bound on, on what we can do. The decision's been made. Uh, so there is some accuracy in people saying, well, if you call them up, they're, you know, they're just going to come trap this bear and it's going to get put down. Under the scenario that's been painted there, um, you know, where that bear's been in a house five times already. Yeah, I, I think that's 100% accurate. That is exactly what our response is going to be. And the plea would be that, you know, a lot of those calls that they may not seem like there's of significance. It's just a, a bear being a bear in town. It's still a bear in town. There is still a high potential for conflict. That's still something that our staff needs to know about. Um, let us ut utilize our expertise and our judgment to determine how to help that bear stay out of trouble, how to keep people safe proactively. Um, so that's that's the plea is just, you know, even on some of those insignificant sightings, recognize the fact that it's a bear in town clo in close proximity to humans. That's not something that should be condoned. We should probably try to to figure out options and alternatives um, ahead of time. So I, I don't, you know, I, I think people are, are trying to do the right thing. Um, I just want to help them frame that the, sometimes the right thing is just letting us know up front that yeah, I get that it, it seems benign that there was a bear walking down the street. Um, better for us to know it and, you know, not have to take any action or do anything with it than to not know it till later on. So, and it does help with that context of, well, they're only going to, if you call them, they're going to put the bear down. If we start receiving the calls, those proactive calls, um, it starts changing those, those statistics to where, yeah, we're not putting them down. And if, if you look at our statistics and, you know, and John, you have experience with that, um, there's a lot of our, our calls that never result in bears being euthanized, handled, et cetera. So. Yeah, I mean, looking statewide already, we've already had over a thousand, uh, you know, bear reported sightings. Um, out of those thousand, I think uh, only 53 traps have been set across Colorado so far this year. Um, and only 11 of those have resulted in a bear being caught and relocated. So I think, um, you know, when folks are kind of looking at those statistics and, you know, maybe you even see a trap out there, uh, a lot of folks maybe kind of assume that, you know, we're, we're looking to get that bear. Where do you think you know, the, the public kind of gets the idea of it, it being so difficult to contact us. And where do we need to maybe look at our messaging and letting people know that, hey, you know, we're, we're doing everything in the best interest of the bear. Um, you know, human safety always first, but, you know, we are really looking out for these animals as well. Yes. I think it starts with, you know, education um, and being proactive. And Matt talked about it, but it's it's um, one, one of the things we've tried to do here in Durango, and we do have a local bear working group we're, we're a part of and um, a recent recipient of of CPW funding to help hit, put, put some of these proactive resources on the ground. But we've also brought on a um, an intern. We facilitated an intern program to have uh, another person. Um, it's, you know, it's not a commissioned officer, but they're able to go out and work with homeowners associations, be proactive, help educate folks, help um, provide some of the um, deterrent resources like noise making devices, um, unwelcome mats, uh, just just do some site assessments. You know, our DWMs do that as well, but um, depending on how all the other things on the plate, you know, um, it's it's hard to be proactive. So it's, it's really nice to, I think, um, look at some alternatives. And, and I think, you know, intern program that we've been utilizing here has been a success. Um, they've been able to hit farmers markets, work with our, our um, local county wildlife advisory group and our, our, bear, our bear working group as well to have a little more action there. Um, and then identify areas that, you know, um, we, we, we know um, maybe issues because of past, um, you know, um, or are popping up and we can go, out there early and often. Um, so it, it helps to have those, those alternate programs, alternative programs, if you will. Um, but yeah, I'll, I'll turn it over to matter Tim. I'll jump in real quick. Um, just with, you know, we've, we've tried a lot of the standard messaging, um, you know, just the same things that, that have been successful that have, um, gained some traction in the past. Uh, we're retaining those, working really closely with our municipal partners to figure out what reaches their communities most effectively. This year, um, as part of our our the CPW um, Human Bear Conflict Reduction Grant, we we were recipients for some of that funding, and we're utilizing some of that funding on a more regional scale. So, for inclusive of all of our communities, 
Um, we're trying to we're working with a, a contractor to put some put together a messaging campaign that is not specific to one municipality. Um, you know that it it's not just just Aspen. It reaches all the communities around Aspen as well. But it's the same messaging so that everybody's playing. You know, pl- kind of playing the same song. Hopefully that resonates a little bit better. Um, the second part to that is that it's not something that's necessarily branded by by CPW as a state management agency. Um, you know, it's there's there's hopefully some ownership taken by some of these communities and and maybe um maybe if, if it's something that they have some buy and say to and and that they're preaching as well and their it's their message, they they take it a little further than what we've been able to do in the past. So we're exploring some of those. Um we've seen some success in that one. It is it's kind of a weird thing because you know we're we're biologists by trade. And for us to go into the PR um, business is, is a different thing for us. But um, trying to get people to understand, um, you know, just just some of that, the significance of, of what that looks like, even some of the, the conflicts we're talking about and how that plays into the biological forum is, is an interesting mix of things. So I'll, I'll stop there and let Tim chime in on what they're doing down in Colorado Springs. Yeah, uh, great points, both Adrian and Matt. And, um, you know, I, I, I want to say too, we all get into this job because we love wildlife. Um, we don't uh, enjoy putting animals down, and and we really need the, uh, you know, the community, the people of Colorado, to be responsible with their um, attractants, trash, and everything else. And so part of that too is just helping folks remember, hey, we are coming up into bear season, and we've got a few different officers that are doing uh, local columns in their newspapers, and just putting that reminder out there because sometimes you know you know, people have the best intention and just that, that may help um, and using social media with some of those reminders as well. Um, one thing we see a lot of uh, too is just bears getting into chickens or uh, goats, uh, different livestock uh, classified as livestock in Colorado. And so we really um, encourage folks to use hot wires and just, you know, anybody that's out there that's got chickens, um, whether you've got two or 20, um, please, please use some hot wires. Um, and this is a, is an avenue that we're looking to get uh, more traction in, in local communities with uh, hardware stores or tractor supplies and, and the uh, big R's of the world of, hey, how can we influence more people because they are coming there to get their uh, chickens or other livestock. And uh, just having those hot wires is a huge prevention uh, for bears getting into it. Um, and we, we see that a lot up in Teller County, but even in Colorado Springs or right around I-25, because we, we do have bears in town frequently. So, um, we've seen those be really effective. And then I just want to echo kind of what was said before, um, Adrian and Matt both touched on it, but please get us in the loop early on, on these calls, um, because we have so many different options. Um, if it's just a sighting or a, a nuisance bear that's coming around, getting into trash, we can haze it. We've got some electrical mats that we've been using as some unwelcome mats. And just like us, bears don't like electricity either. And we've seen that really work uh, well. So, Matt, I was going to ask a little bit about some uh, bear biology and just curious, you know, when you have a food failure year in the high country versus maybe a, a year where there's really you know, good available, um, you know, mass uh, for bears to pack on those pounds. How does that also affect, you know, bears biology wise, as far as, you know, reproduction, uh, you know, producing cubs um, and everything else that goes into that? That's a, an awesome point, John. Um, I think there's a lot of misunderstanding and misconceptions about how bears respond to some of these, these natural food sources. Um, you know, in a, in a food failure year, um, yeah, bears are hungry. They're they're looking for whatever they can get. They're trying to put on calories. They they they're trying to survive. We understand that concept. Um, what it what I think it is sometimes missed or, or is not recognized uh, or understood is that following years the the, the years that that um, the year after two years down the road it also play, plays a, a role in what's to be expected or what should be expected um, in those upcoming years. Um, for example, you know, here recently, I, I've been in this area for the last 12 years now. Um, it's interesting. Uh, we've had at least definitely two of those years where there was a, a food failure year that resulted in sows abandoning cubs. 
kind of a, a across the board. And what the story behind it was is that there wasn't enough food out there for those sows to keep themselves alive and fend for their young. So they they made the the hard decision. And Mother Nature's cruel. And they kicked them out and said, yep, I'm going to survive. Next year, um, I'll be around. You're not. And they they did that knowingly. Um, it puts us in a tough spot. You know, again, we're, we're, we don't want to see animals suffer. We don't want to see animals die. Nobody else does. Um, but that's one of those natural phenomenon that's, that's out there. The following year, um, you know, coming off of that, when sows are going into the den and they're in bad body condition, um, it's, it's a rough thing because they have a, a biological phenomenon, delayed implantation, where when they're bred in the spring, they don't necessarily get pregnant right away. They're, they're waiting to see what that spring and summer bring for them. And if their body's in poor enough condition um, based on a lack of food, they won't get pregnant. And come time to den, they will not have cubs in the den. And that should be a natural feat where, um, you know, we're in most of Colorado, we've been seeing this drought scenario for the better part of a decade. And there should have been several of those years where the following year we didn't see sows with with dependent young coming out of the den. Uh, they, they you know, they probably should have been in such poor body condition that they weren't able to to have cubs. But yet every year we the spring rolls around and first thing we see is sows that are popping out, you know, a couple cubs. And and if you look back at the historical uh, management plans, it used to be, you know, studies used to show that that bears, black bears in Colorado typically had one cub, maybe two on the extreme cases. Um, and anymore, it's normal for sows to be producing at, at a minimum twins. Lots of places, it's triplets. And locally here, we're even starting to see that trend dipping into quadruplets, um, where sows have four dependent cubs. <laughs> and that's that's something that that's fairly outrageous. Um, you know, that's that's showing that there's that there, there's probably too much food out there. And if you look at that, what has changed, a lot of that food is the artificial, the human-related attractants, the, those food sources. Um you can't say that it's mother nature providing for them when we're in the middle of a drought year and we don't have berries, we don't have acorns, there's no grasses. Um, it's really tough to be able to attribute that to, to mother nature providing um, what those bears need. Yeah. And I, if I could jump in there, John, I mean, it reflects too, we, you know, we do have a structured hunting season in the fall and I think those food failure years, you know, there's a correlation you see and you talk to hunters around there checking and make sure things doing things right. Um, get an assessment of, you know, what the harvest is. Um, and folks, you know, they, they, they're not seeing many bears out there, you know, where acorns, berries should be. Um, and usually you look at the incidents and where they're at and it's right, right in the developed areas. So to Matt's point, I think they're, they're it's an unnatural food source, you know, where normally they wouldn't be getting that based on the natural food conditions out there, but that food is available. So they are able to, and that's where we see the, the rise in conflicts, especially hitting that hyperphagia state in the fall. I want to do a quick round robin here and just ask everybody this. I think we talk about the obvious attractants a lot, that being unsecured trash and bird feeders. But what are some of the more obscure attractants that each of you have seen a bear drawn to? I know we've seen things like lip gloss inside of a car and stuff like that, but uh, Tim, let's start with you. What is one of the more obscure things you've seen a bear get into? There, um, there's actually a chemical in the uh, lids of hot tubs, um, and I've seen that a couple different times uh, where bears have just torn apart the uh, the covers to those hot tubs, and folks are like, "What the heck is going on here?" and and uh, it's because there's a, there's an attractant. There's like I said, their noses are amazing and so they're smelling that uh in there that chemical and it actually smells like uh ant pheromones if i remember right and so they they tear into it thinking that there's some some bugs in there but there's not so that's probably one of the weirder ones that i've seen um that's been out there that's incredible is there anything people can do to try to mask that smell or like a different kind of cover they can get well like what do we recommend in that situation no, I haven't seen, and I don't know if Adrian or Matt have any recommendations on that. Um, I don't I don't have any good solutions there, other than if you do have a bear that's coming around your property, you could hang a rag that's partially soaked in ammonia and a little bit of oil, um, just so that ammonia doesn't uh, dissipate too quickly. Uh, oil helps keep it on there um, a little longer, uh, but you could hang that around your hot tub if you know that you've got a bear that's coming around. Uh, that would probably be one of the main things. And that odor is pungent to their nose. They don't like that smell, and that's why that'll help keep them away. 
I'm a sucker for a good hot tub, and now I'm going to have to think twice about putting one in. So I uh, appreciate that advice, Tim. Um, Adrian, uh, how about you? What's uh, one of the more obscure tractants you've seen a bear uh, get in, involved with? You know, it may not be obscure tractant because it is related to food or remnants or scent of food, but vehicles. I, you know, too often we see bears, um, and and especially vehicles that have the uh, the the handle where a bear can get its paw under and just pop it open, doors unlocked. We see this especially a lot in trailheads, campgrounds, could be at residences too, but, you know, we get the call and it's like, oh, there was a bear in my vehicle and it trashed it and it was absolutely clean. There was nothing in there. We're good about taking stuff out, but you think about how often we as humans eat in our vehicles. Uh, if you have kids, you know, they drop French fries in between the seats so that that scent remains. And it, we've talked about it. They have such an amazing sense of smell. Um, you know, if, if windows are cracked just a little bit, they can get their paws in there and pop that glass or just open the door. And there's absolutely nothing worse. And I'll remember these, you know, for the rest of my days, getting the calls and going to a bear that got access into a vehicle, usually via an unlocked door that had just used the handle. It's amazing. They get in and they hit the lock button behind them and it, it never ends well. <laughs> it's, I've seen some vehicles completely totaled. No question. Matt, uh, how about you? Anything uh, obscure that uh, comes to the top of mind that bears have gotten in trouble with? No, I was going to go one step further off of Adrian's comment about vehicles, um, you know, and and vehicles have come a long, long way. And there's a lot of vehicles now that um, they don't even have door handles or or, you know, they have automated systems for opening hatches, every trunks, everything else. Um, and it's interesting because it, it makes it easier for us as humans but it also increases the ease of entry for some of some of these wild species um, where those bears, you know, now it's a motion sensing thing underneath the, the rear bumper where you wave your foot in order to release the back hatch. Um, bears have figured that out. They, they are, they'll exploit the heck out of whatever we give them the opportunity to. Um, you know, we've, we've seen that kind of an uptick and some of that related to a lot of our businesses around here where they, you know, as a result of some of the COVID era, They've installed um, instead of door handles where you have to open the door manually, you know, they have a motion sensing system that as you go by, it opens it for you. So nobody has to touch it, um, lacking, you know, preventing the spread of germs. But bears, when they're wandering around through town, they they trigger those motion sensors just like a person. And now they have entrance into the, the lobby of whatever hotel or restaurant or um, ends up in the same results as what Adrian was talking about. And nobody wants to clean up that mess. So it's just a thing. Um, the only other thing I throw out there is, you know, a lot of our discussion is, has kind of um, favored something related to human recognized food attractants. And there's there are other products out there, um, whether it's it's any kind of, um, you know, our like hair care products, even, you know, just human hygiene products um, like motor oil, uh, antifreeze, cool, just different things like that that are scented or have some sort of a scent associated with them. And bears because they're being guided by their nose they're they're curious um they'll get into those kinds of things so even things that aren't you wouldn't necessarily as a human you wouldn't think of that being a food source or an attractant if it's got a scent to it especially if it's any kind of a sweet scent or something that is you know we we tend to try to make things more appealing to us as humans so we mask the scent of something bad with mint or whatever else that is you know that's just the manufacturer's way of trying to make that more appealing and tolerable for us um that mint that bear does, doesn't differentiate that, that you know they they can't read the label and say, say that that's just a a mint additive. Um, so they you know they'll they'll go through and and go into a garage and kind of start picking through cans that are non food items um, in an attempt to find something that's food related. But uh, I, you know we've responded to the ones where bears have gone through and have have um, consumed antifreeze before, and and that, it's a poison. You know just like it would be for humans. It's not a pleasant thing to deal with, but just making people aware that if, if there's a scent to it, you know, recognize that that may may serve as a, a wildlife attractant as well. I think one of my goals in doing this podcast or writing staff profiles or various things I do in my public information officer role is that I want people in the state of Colorado and our visitors to understand that, you know, our staff, you know, we're more than just a logo or that truck you see driving by, you know, we're uh, a group of people who are, you know, highly qualified, you know, uh, really, you know, smart professionals working in their field. Um, and there's an emotional side of that too, I feel like, especially when it comes to, to bear management. I'm just curious if any of you guys can kind of hit on, you know, the emotional toll uh, that, you know, our officers, um, you know, take on sometimes when it comes to bear management, especially in a really bad barrier, 
or where they're just dealing with, you know, incident after incident. And, you know, so oftentimes from our perspective, it's preventable incidents uh, that lead us, unfortunately, having to put a bear down. I guess if anybody could just kind of speak to, um, you know, the emotional toll that does take on our people. Sure thing, I can jump in. Um, you know, a food failure year, um, or even just, it doesn't even have to be a total food failure year, but a year where we're experiencing a lot of conflict. Um, our officers have a lot on their plate already. Um, they don't have set schedules. Um, and in many cases, they're going to work until the job is done. And when we have a lot of conflicts going on, uh, you'll see that officers are running from literally one bear call to another. Um, and they may have an 18 or or 24 hour a day. In some cases, I've been there and done that myself. Um, and you're not sleeping well at night because a lot of the calls are coming in at night. Um, you're still trying to have a personal life with your family or friends. Um, it, but that, I mean, fades away just a little bit because we are running ragged on so many calls. And kind of the first thing that I've seen is just that exhaustion of our officers going from one call to the other, also trying to balance all the other critical things uh, that uh, our district wildlife managers do on a day-to-day -day basis. Uh, but then also when we're having to euthanize bears, I mean, there is that definite emotional toll um, uh, on our officers. And I've seen, you know, several officers, uh, you know, rightly so get emotional when they're having to put down bears. And when it's your, you know, fifth or 10th bear that year, um, that just, I mean, it, it eats at you. Like I said, we get into this job, this profession, because we love wildlife. Um, Matt said, you know, we're all biologists at heart. Um, and uh, we see that a lot of this is preventable. Um, people are are leaving something out and, and making a mistake, but, you know, ultimately that could be the death sentence for a bear. And when it's a mistake like that, I mean, we see that as officers and it really takes a toll on folks. Um, and I do think that's probably one of the hardest aspects of this job is repeated that over every summer, over five years. And uh, it really takes a toll on folks. So we all know bears are such a lovable creature and they really trigger a lot of emotion in people. As we wrap up today, what is one thing you'd like residents and visitors to Colorado to take away from this episode so they can safely coexist with bears in Colorado? I think um, you, you hit a buzzword there, John, and I think that word was coexist. And I think that word has morphed over time. And coexistence doesn't mean that, you know, as humans, we, we should be tolerating, um, you know, 20 bears that live in town and that never leave city limits. Um, that I don't think that's an appropriate way for those bears to exist and coexist with humans. Um, you know, they, they have habitat requirements and there there is habitat. Colorado's got a lot of public lands. We have a lot of, of um, uninterrupted environment out there. And that's when we manage species in Colorado, wildlife species in Colorado, it's based off of the, the, the habitat that's available outside of those city limits in, in most regards. Um, that's the appropriate habitat for those bears to exist in. Um, coexistence, you know, as as humans, we we still we still have to have those boundaries set up, and there there needs to be kind of a uh, some sort of delineation between what's what is responsible in the realm of wildlife management, and um, having bears that are entering homes, even if it didn't hurt anybody, that's not responsible. Uh, it's not responsible for humans. That's not responsible for for the the well being of that animal, um, for the generations of of offspring that they're going to train. So, you know, that's one of those things that there is um, coexistence is a great word, but you got to take it in the context of there's an appropriate way where time, place, all the above for those animals to live. And that's probably not in the middle of, of a, a populated town um, in the middle of a residential area. So, you know, just making sure that people understand when they come and visit this state or they they choose to live in this state that. Yeah, we have a responsibility as humans, um, but we also have some rights as people too to to have a, a town that doesn't have, um, you know, that is doesn't have twenty bears hanging out in there, and that we don't have to go out on our back porch and um, and be afraid of of being attacked by a bear just because of where we live. Um, so there's 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 different things there, but they they also you know they need to know and accept that, but they also need to also um, understand and accept the responsibility they have as a human. We are you know we are intelligent. Um, uh, intelligent species as well. 
we have the ability to think proactively and to think down the road and, and to understand consequence. Um, so that's something that let's be human about that. Let's utilize that and help have that protect our our wildlife resource. I'll add on to what Matt and Tim said a little bit too. And I think it goes along with coexistence and just understand, you know, <clears throat> what you're living in, where you're moving to, um, what where what area you're recreating in. But um, especially if you're out there and, you know, um, out out in the forest back country um we have a lot of dogs you know and as our state continues to expand just be mindful that um th- those can h- potentially create conflict um they are viewed as you know uh, potential predators or competition so um just recreate responsibly um that goes along too just with reiterating just please do your part whether it's at home you're camping, um, you know, going out for a hike, um, give, give animals space. That's not bears. That's, that's deer, elk, all those things. Please, please, um, recreate and live responsibly here. You know, a big part of our job is to manage these resources, you know, whether you're consumptive or non-consumptive for the, the enjoyment and, and, you know, sustainability of these populations well into the future. And we're facing some real challenges. Development's one of them, drought conditions, um, you name it. There's a lot of things we're facing, but as this state continues to grow, you know, we have an impact as humans and we all, we all recreate differently, but um, we can all have impact. So just be mindful, be mindful when you're out there, please respect wildlife. I'll chime in and just a little bit of summarization is it's your responsibility um, as people to be uh, mindful of the attractants that are out there. If you've got livestock, you know, it's your responsibility to protect them, put up that hot wire. Um, A lot of, you know, the the instances that we've discussed today uh, come down to people that are not being responsible uh, with their trash or with some sort of attractant or bird seed or something like that. Uh, but as Coloradans and, and, you know, tourists that are coming into Colorado, it's your responsibility. Please keep all of that stuff secured. And that's, you know, how you're going to uh, protect our, our wildlife uh, from getting into it, especially bears. All right. One last thing for you guys before I let you go. I'd like to real quick just touch on the amazing work that happens at our Frisco Creek Wildlife Rehab Center over in Del Norte. I know Michael Sorokman does a great job rehabbing our orphan cubs. They come to the facility from all over the state, and I know all of you have sent cubs there this year and in years past. Could you just real quick just touch on the great work that's being done over there to get these bears rehabbed and sent back out to the wild? Phenomenal. And I think, you, and I think, you know, Sorokman in that Frisco facility does a phenomenal job. Um, and it's, it's tough because, I mean, I'll say, I mean, there's nothing cuter than a little bear cub. And when you have to intervene and, and and grab those little things and and take them over there um it, it's rewarding because i think on the on the flip side and it, it is a lot of work because you do we do um oftentimes put them out in artificial dens during the winter time so that involves getting other resources that we don't typically use but we do have on hand you know snow cats um snow you know other snowmobiles with trailers and just going in scouting an area and really trying to pick a good spot um doing the work that it takes to to get those cubs out but um it it's it's rewarding to see those success stories where we do have to take them in and you know we've had some um here you recall one of the big you know things that have happened here is fires and we had you know one of the cubs get you know some burned paws and we were able to rehab that successfully and so it can be really rewarding to see that um those animals rehabbed and, and put back out there in nature yeah i think important for people to understand the lengths we'll kind of go to to, to help these animals um you know any, any way we can i guess uh matt or tim any experience with that yeah, our, you know, our staff, we we do that every year. Um, we take a lot of pride in in doing that. I mean, practicing wildlife conservation, that's that's something that we definitely take to heart. Um, you know, we, it doesn't it's not not something that we take lightly, um, you know, trying to perpetuate the wildlife resource of this state. Um, our our end game is we want to make sure that that our kids, you know, everybody else's kids, future generations still get to see black bears. Um, you know, and, and ultimately the goal is still being able to go out in the woods, go hiking and know that black bears are out there, know that they're safe, that their populations are healthy. Uh, that's a good thing. That's a, a nice thing to be able to, to kind of hang your hat on at the end of the day. 
Well, that's really great, guys. I just want to thank everyone for taking some time out of your busy schedules to talk about bears across Colorado today. We're already starting to look toward fall and the hyperphagia period, and we know we'll be talking about bears in our communities a lot more here as we go forward. We're going to take a quick little break, and then we're going to be right back with Chris and Cannon out of the Northeast region as we talk more about our human bear conflict grants here in Colorado. You are listening to Colorado Outdoors, the podcast for Colorado Parks and Wildlife. To learn more on how you can reduce human bear conflicts, visit our website at cpw.state.co.us. We are now joined by Kristen Cannon, who's a deputy region manager in the Northeast region for Colorado Parks and Wildlife, who has helped facilitate our human bear conflict reduction grant um, over the last two years. And uh, Kristen, I just want to thank you uh, for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. Just real quick before we jump into talking about the human bear conflict reduction grants, can you just give us a quick sense of what your wildlife officers are seeing this year as it relates to bear activity in the Northeast region? I know it's been a big moisture summer with lots of rain in the Denver metro and foothills areas. Is that impacting bear activity in your region this year? Yeah, so it has been a really wet spring. We have a lot of green and I imagine we'll have a good crop of fruit and natural food sources in the fall, which will be really helpful in in the northeast region especially we don't have the most quality habitat and so we sort of always have a baseline level of conflicts in this area because we just have more bears than the habitat can really support and so we always have bears that are trying to look for new ways of getting food and there's a lot of people so people provide quite a bit of of food source for them so we always seem to have some conflict regardless of how wet or good food natural food production the year is and and i think this spring's been no no different. We've seen a lot of bears moving. So we've had bears in uh, locations like cities or just farther east where we don't necessarily want them to uh, live long term. And so we've moved some bears. We've had bears out there. We haven't, I don't think, aren't seeing the type of like late or midsummer uh, conflict that we normally do. But I, I think there's still plenty plenty of conflict keeping us busy and, and always uh, stuff to do and bears to to look out for. Yeah, Kristen, thanks for that. Now let's uh, real quick, just take some time and talk a little bit about our new bear conflict reduction grant opportunity that began in 2022. And now CPW is continuing here in 2023. In 2022, we got some funding that was passed through a bill in 2021 through the state legislature that provided a million dollars worth of uh, potential funding for communities, um, organizations, um, and folks who are looking at funding ways to reduce human bear conflicts. And I know we got 29 applicants uh, that first year and 11 uh, groups were rewarded. Uh, what was it just like uh, being part of that process and, and seeing all these great proposals come in as communities are really looking to get on top of these human bear conflicts? Yeah, so the money actually came in the form of a, a larger bill and a million dollars was set aside to address native species conservation or just bear conflict in general. And so we didn't really have any specific direction on how to spend that money or what to do with it. So we got together internally and it was decided through our own discussion through with staff that we should give that money out to communities through a grant program to help communities deal with human bear conflict and help them address it and prevent it. And so we determined that we were going to do a grant program. And so we kind of start had to start from the ground up and develop a, a program and criteria and, and what we were looking for from applicants and then publicize it and ask for applications and then evaluate those applications and award the funding. So it was really, I, I found it really encouraging and it was really interesting because we didn't know if we would get one application. We didn't know if we'd get a million applications. We just, since we hadn't done this before and had never asked communities, hey, if we have some money for you, we have some funding, what would you spend it on to prevent human bear conflict in your community? And so when we put that ask out there, it was really great to get the response that we did. It was great to see the diversity of applications throughout the state of different projects from different places and what ideas communities had to address human bear conflict in their own neighborhoods. Sure. What would you say were some of the more um, 
you know, creative or uh, different approaches uh, various groups uh, looked at, um, you know, for funding ways to, um, you know, kind of help prevent future human bear conflicts. So were there any really creative uh, applications or solutions that you saw? There, there were some. There was some that were going to try to maybe take a different angle on education. There were some that looked at getting garbage enclosures as opposed to like bear resistant dumpsters or cans so that a community could have an enclosure to use. There was a, an application that was successful to provide support for fruit gleaning. So in the fall, having community groups go and pick up backyard fruit from fruit trees to prevent those from becoming attractants in cities and more developed areas. And so that one was really interesting. Um, there were some that were uh, asking to provide electric fencing for backyard apiarists uh, and other and composting. So that, that you know, to go beyond garbage and, and look at some of the other attractants. So all, all of those were some of the, the more interesting ones to, that I saw. Yeah, I think it really just highlights all the different ways and how many different attractants there are for bears that can bring them into our residential areas. It, it seems like as uh, technology grows and uh, everything kind of changes around us, you know, bears kind of pick up on some of this stuff too, whether it's, you know, uh, dog food being delivered to people's homes and maybe being left out, or it just seems like there's always a kind of a new challenge. Uh, do you kind of see that um, as communities are kind of looking at, at different ways of, hey, things aren't as simple as just taking down your bird feeders anymore? Yeah, absolutely. Because it seems like the easiest attraction is garbage, but once that's secured, then bears are going to look for the next easy meal. And it's interesting that some of our own behaviors then, as you mentioned, like having dog food delivered, kind of change the attractants and what we're dealing with. And and so certainly it's, it's always sort of an arms race between us and bears because they also outsmart a lot of what we do as well. And so we have to adapt in that sense too. Well, as we look ahead to um, the announcement of grant recipients uh, in 2023, um, can you just uh, walk us through a little bit about how CPW is now funding this grant cycle and um, you know ways we're looking to continue to push uh, that grant opportunity forward for various communities and partners? Yeah, so it, one of the biggest successes of that first year is that it was so well received by communities and applicants in the agency that the agency decided to make this more of a year-to-year -year thing. And so they found some internal funding that we could fund the grant for longer term. And so instead of having this one-time money that we sort of had to decide how to spend and developed a, a grant program in order to get it out there to communities, now, now we have a program. So we have a program manager for it. We have somebody, Travis Long, who's dedicated to managing the grant itself, which is really helpful. And we also are, are learning from applications and applicants and grant reviewers. And so we can make the, the process better as the years go on and, and tweak it and make it see and then get the word out to other communities that may not have heard about it last year and continue to solicit applications and project ideas. So it's really, really exciting when you've got a few years to work on it, uh, the, the opportunities and the way you can streamline it and just make it a more sustainable long-term program. Sure. Well, Kristen, we really want to thank you for joining the podcast uh, and for all your work uh, with this human bear uh, conflict reduction grant. I know it's uh, been a big uh, benefit to folks in the community I live in in Durango, but all over the state. And I'm looking forward to seeing those projects uh, get funded uh, here in 2023. And um, yeah, just want to thank you a bunch for joining the show. Yeah, thank you, John. Appreciate it. Bears need your help. Colorado Parks and Wildlife is charged with protecting and preserving the state's wildlife. Every time we must euthanize a bear, it's not just the bear that loses. We all lose a little piece of the wildness that makes Colorado so special. As we wrap up today's show, I just want to take an extra quick second to thank all of our guests for joining us today, and especially to all of our listeners who are tuning back in. I uh, look forward to bringing you another episode of the Colorado Outdoors podcast soon. And in the meantime, make sure you hit that subscribe, whether it's on Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. You can check us out, and we'll see you again next month. You've been listening to Colorado Outdoors, the podcast for Colorado Parks and Wildlife. Be sure to subscribe and join us for future episodes 
where we'll continue to explore the awe-inspiring landscapes, wildlife, and outdoor experiences Colorado has to offer.